0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, May 21st, 2023, we continue our series titled Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. Today's sermon, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 32. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon.
1: Think about how do we decide whether we're going to obey on something. I mean, we typically think, well, does it make sense? Does it fit with my goals? Is this something that's gonna move me forward both personally and professionally? But what about when God simply asks something of me? You see, Peter here knows that Jesus is special. He saw what happened in his house, he saw what happened with his mom, so he knows he's special, but he also knows in the back of his mind, isn't this a carpenter's kid? And so very politely in verse five, Peter says, Master, we fished all night, we didn't catch anything. But here's where the trust comes in. He says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Do you realize what a big deal that is to do something simply because God asks us to do it? Obedience should not be directed by worldly logic. It's about trusting in God. Meeting Jesus is humbling. Meeting Jesus introduces me to my purpose. Trusting in Jesus moves me to serve. God's call in your life is to make your life count now for Him. Say yes.
0: This morning, we are in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Before we get there, um, I want to share a little story that really uh, pulls out some verses from this text. Growing up as a kid, I grew up in a Christian home. I mean, there's Christian homes, there's Christian, Christian homes, and then there was my home. And then there's Christian homes at homeschool. That's even further down the road, but that's totally fine. I'm just kidding if that's you, it's great. Don't hate me, don't email me, it's totally fine. Uh, I am grateful for the way that I grew up. I really am. Uh, We were in Christian school, we went to church, we were in Awanas, we had star charts for the amount of Bible verses we memorized. And not to brag, but mine was always full. Um, Growing up, I had like Bible memorization trophies, Um, even won a few Christian character awards. So obviously, God was lucky to have me. Okay? This was the attitude that I carried around a lot as a kid. I hope you're sensing my sarcasm. It's not the attitude we should have. Uh, I thought I was a pretty good kid. I thought I was a pretty big deal. I thought I understood Jesus. Uh, I thought I knew all of the answers to everything. I, I, I would always rattle them off. We'd be in Sunday school, and the question, Uh, Man, what lives in a tree? It's bushy, it has a fuzzy tail, it eats nuts. It sounds like a squirrel, but the answer has to be Jesus because we're in church. So of course I'd get that one right all the time. I knew everything and I projected this kind of attitude that you'd say was really kind of pharisaical. Uh, The guys in the scriptures that Jesus didn't always get along with, the guys who always said the right things, did the right things to maintain this external appearance that really was me and my heart and where I was at. Until I was about a freshman in high school, uh, many of you have heard this story before. I'll share it again. As a freshman in high school, went on a missions trip to Sin City, to Las Vegas. And we were doing street evangelism and passing out Bible tracts and talking about Jesus with everyone that we possibly could. Uh, and one night, the missionary who was leading our trip was sharing the gospel with a prostitute. Uh, and I was livid. I was really frustrated. I was angry. Why? Does he know who he's talking to? See he not realize like she's really sinful, or like she, she's dirty, she's gross, and you're going to spend time. What are you doing talking to her? And, and and watching this exchange, this conversation happen, slowly this lady began to weep. The Lord was just breaking her heart, and slowly the missionary began to weep. His heart was breaking as her heart was breaking, and watched this guy lead her through the sinner's prayer and watch her repent of her sin and turn to Christ and walk in newness of life like so many of us have. And I sat there in bitterness and frustration. Afterwards, as the night went on, I asked him, I said, what's the deal with that? Do you not know who you were talking to? How much of a sinner, how sick and disgusting? And he shared with me verses that we're actually gonna look at this morning in Luke chapter five. He said, Thomas, here's the deal. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. It's not the well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. And for one of the first times in my life, I feel like I really grasped and understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus wasn't looking for religious folks like me. Uh, it's the religious folks that we'll see in our text this morning. Jesus actually had a bone to pick with them. They would oftentimes go toe-to-toe and head-to-head on their theology and the way that they lived their life. I realized I had some pretty significant misconceptions and misunderstandings about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And my fear is, while a lot of us have grown up in church and been walking with Jesus for a while, maybe we too also have some misconceptions and misunderstandings about who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. We're in this series right now in the gospel of Luke called Knowing Jesus. Why knowing Jesus? Because we deeply want to follow Jesus. Not be religious, not be churched, not act like Christians. We want to follow Jesus. And for us to follow him, we have to know him. And through our text this morning in Luke 5, I think we really get a wonderful glimpse of who Jesus is. So we are in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, beginning there. Let me pray for us and then we'll we'll hop in. God, thank you for an opportunity this morning to stop and pause and reflect on our life and reflect on the life of your son. God, if more of you means less of me, my heart this morning, God, is that you would take everything. God, I pray that would be the heart Um, of everyone in attendance this morning, Lord, that we would humble ourselves to be used by you, that you would lead us wherever you want to. God, this morning, would you open our eyes that we would see your son Jesus clearly, maybe clearer than we have in the past, that you would open our minds to know you and understand you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our ears, that we would hear the still, small voice of God calling out to us, saying, follow me, that we would respond with a heart of faith and trust that would lead to open our mouth and speak of who Jesus is. God, be glorified in everything we say and do in this place this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We're in Luke chapter five, beginning in verse 17. There's three big points in your outline this morning, kind of three takeaways, if you will, of what we see in this text. And in verse 17, it's really gonna set the stage for what's to come. And in this first section, what we see is that Jesus sees the faith of five friends. Jesus sees the faith of five friends. Doesn't sound like much, but we'll get to it, and I'll share why that stuck out to me so much this week. Beginning in verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching, this is Jesus teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. The stage is really set for Jesus to do something Marvelous For Jesus to do something amazing, something miraculous. And what you see in attendance, there's these people the text calls Pharisees, teachers of the law, and later he even calls them scribes. These were the people who spent all their life studying the Old Testament law, teaching the Old Testament law, and upholding the Old Testament law in their life and in the lives of people around them. Now, because they presented this external shell of religion, of law, of look at us, we do the right things, we say the right things, they gained a lot of respect from the people around them. And they walked the walk, they talked the talk. Jesus, however, had an issue with them. You can look at the gospel of Mark chapter seven and Jesus said, man, here's what I have against you. You leave the doctrines of God and hold fast to the traditions of men. In other words, you've elevated your own Standards, your own traditions, the things that you think everyone should do, you've put those on the same level as my Old Testament law for you to uphold your religion exterior, your walk the walk, your talk the talk. Jesus had a constant issue with this. In the New Testament. But these guys have traveled from all over the region to come and hear him preach, to come and hear him teach. It says they've come from Galilee, from Judea, and from Jerusalem. Well, why would they do such a thing? Well, if you rewind to the passage we saw last week, Jesus was doing things like healing people. Last week we saw a leper and he said, Leper, take your hand, put it in your coat. Now take it out of your coat. Ta da, your hand is totally healed. Your leprosy is gone. Prior to that, they're in a church service, and there's a guy with the demon, and Jesus goes, hey, come out of him. Cast the demon out of a guy. Well, people are going to start hearing about that a little bit. He was at like a dinner party in a home a few nights prior to that, and people are bringing all of their sick, all of their unhealthy, all of those who need healing, and Jesus heals them person after person after person. So his reputation precedes him all over the place. It's like you'd meet someone new, and hey, I'm Thomas, and they say, hey, I'm Joe, and you say, oh, Joe. I know all about you. So-and-so has told me everything. This is what's gone on with Jesus. The word is starting to spread that he teaches as someone with authority that he's different from the guys who have come before him. People want to hear him. People want to see him. So crowds start to show up. Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Mark chapter 2 says it was four men, so we'll go with that. And behold, four men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Jesus, now what's going on here? There is such a massive crowd. It's like standing room only, and they just can't get in. You ever been to a standing room only kind of concert? These are the concerts I went to growing up. They were like the emo, screamo, punk type of thing. The places we went were dark, dingy, disgusting. They smelled like old cigarettes and stale alcohol. It was the best. It was the coolest thing ever. And that's where we'd spend our time in high school. And to get all the way forward up in front, you'd have to fight the crowd to try to move as far forward as you possibly could and you just couldn't do it. That's what's going on here in this text. These four friends want to bring their friend to Jesus so he can heal him but there's just no way in. So what do they do? They do whatever it takes. They get up on top of the roof. There was probably a staircase or a ladder to do so. And while Jesus is teaching, they just start tearing apart the roof. I mean, I imagine this would be a little distracting for us this morning, wouldn't it? Like if there was just a bunch of pounding happening, and then we, we kinda hear talking from up there and eventually we all just stop and we're like, What is going on? And then the roof tiles come up and slowly but surely someone just kinda like slowly zip lines their way. We would kind of just stop and watch and wonder like what's what's gonna happen? That's the place all of these people are in. What's Jesus gonna do? What's Jesus gonna say? And before we get to what Jesus says, I wanna focus on this one little tidbit in verse 20. It says, and when he saw their faith, and I could not get around that this week, and when he saw their faith. See, the religious folks, they were just religious. They did the right things, they said the right things, but there's something different about these people where Jesus sees them and sees their faith. Man, that should be true of us, should it not? Just like Jesus saw the faith of these people, the world around us should see our faith. If you look at James chapter two, it says faith without works is dead. You will say, I have faith, you have works. And some will say, I have works and you have faith. Both are wrong. Jesus wants our heart. So you can look at James chapter two, faith without works, it's just rebellion. Works without faith, that's religion. That's what Jesus has an issue with with these religious folks. But there's something different about these guys. They're willing to do whatever it takes. Their actions speak so much louder than their words. Without having a single conversation, Jesus sees their faith. Would that be true of us as well, friends, that the world around us might see our faith based upon the way that we live? Second thing we see in this text is that Jesus forgives the paralytic's sins, Jesus forgives the paralytic sins. Now here's the deal. If you were going to a doctor because you had some infirmity, some ailment that you wanted them to heal you of, and the first thing they said were, Son, your sins are forgiven. You probably feel like, hey, that's thank you, that's great. Not exactly why I'm here. Right? It's interesting in our Bible, if you look at the heading that your Bible gives this passage, it says, Jesus heals a paralytic. That's secondary to the first thing he actually does. Let's look what Jesus says to him. And when he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. Man, your sins are forgiven. Let's break that down real quick. What are sins? We can think about them two ways. They're sins of commission and they're sins of omission. A sin of commission would be God says, don't do this, but we do it. We commit sins. An example would be steal. Don't steal, but we steal. Don't lie, but we lie. Don't cheat, but we cheat. There's also sins of omission. God says, do this, and we don't. God says, forgive. As I have forgiven you, so you ought to forgive one another. Just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. When we don't love how we ought to, when we don't forgive how we ought to, that also is a sin. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, everyone has this sin problem. So um, if you're in here, you're in good company. All of us have sin in our life. All of us do things God says don't do that and all of us don't do the things that God says do that. We sin. Romans chapter six, verse 23 says the penalty for that sin, the wage of that sin is death. It's death, separation from God eternally forever but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love how that is playing out right here in this transaction, this conversation that Jesus has. He says, man, your sins, the things you've done, And the things you've chosen to not do are forgiven. The debt you owe, the wage you deserve, death, it's forgiven. Your debt's been paid, your debt's been taken care of, your guilt has been removed. Why? Because of his faith. It's his faith in Jesus that has set him free and forgiven him of his sins. And the scribes and Pharisees, here's our religious folks, The people who knew all the right things, did all the right things, said all the right things, they're not going to like this. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies Who can forgive sins but God alone? What's blasphemy? A blasphemy is anything that would defame God, anything that would dishonor God, anything that would try to glory grab from God, the glory he deserves, we take it from our own. Anything that would lie about who God is or what God has done. And in this case, the blasphemy they're accusing him of is in the next verse. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which is correct theology. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Now here's the deal. If Jesus wasn't God, John chapter one says Jesus is God, was God, was with God at the beginning. He is God. If Jesus was not God, to forgive sins is 100% blasphemy. And they would have been right to drag him out of the city and stone him to death for blasphemy. But if he is God, man, there's something remarkable happening here. If he is God, something truly remarkable is happening. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier? Which is easier? Either which is easier for me to do, which is easier for you to hear? We're not totally sure. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? In other words, which one are you going to be okay with? Really, religious folks. Are you really gonna be okay if I say your sins are forgiven? No, you're not. And are you gonna be okay if I say rise and walk? No, you're not. So let's do both. And that's what Jesus does here what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk verse 24 but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins pause for one second this this title son of man in your bible is probably capitalized it's referring to a very specific title that these religious folks would be familiar with In Daniel chapter 7, it refers to a story, a vision, if you will, about a son of man, someone like a son of man being presented to the ancient of days. God the Father in the ancient of days gives this son of man a kingdom that will never end, authority that will never end, rule that will never end, a kingdom that will never be conquered. And the Pharisees, the religious folks, the teachers of the law, the scribes, they would be looking forward to the appearing of this son of man this one who appeared before the ancient of days and they would be looking forward to him and here's what jesus is saying right now uh, okay you all said who can forgive sins but god alone watch this now but so that you may know the son of man has power to forgive sins he goes and heals him jesus claims to be god this is his claim to deed this is claim to be God, therefore he can forgive sins. He says to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Yeah, you've seen the son of man show up in a home, forgive sins, and then heal someone of their paralysis. Those are extraordinary things. And the man gets up and and leaves, and it says he's glorifying God. And this entire audience, everyone, from the guy who just showed up and crept in to the people who lowered their friend down through the roof, everyone leaves glorifying God. Why? This is what happens when you truly encounter Jesus. Jesus you glorify God. They leave worshiping him for who he is. They leave worshiping him for what he's done. The paralytic is friends and this entire audience of people. Why? Because Jesus has forgiven sins. Jesus has forgiven sins. And just like Jesus forgave the sin of the paralytic, Jesus forgives our sins as well take your Bibles with me. Um, We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and look at this idea of God's grace and how he is the one who forgives us. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. If you're trying to turn there or go all the way to the right and start going to the left slowly, you'll find it. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven says this, in him we have redemption. That means we are bought back. In him we have been purchased through his blood, the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses are sins. Just like you might trespass onto someone's property, maybe knowingly and maybe unknowingly, you trespass into areas you should not go. So too, we are guilty of trespassing into areas of life we should not go. Whether we know it, or whether we don't, it is still trespassing in life. It's still sin, doing the things God says don't do this and failing to do the things that God says do. We have been forgiven of those trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Go to the right, Ephesians chapter two, verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved. It's not our works. It's not the things we do. It's not knowing all the answers, living a certain way, talking a certain way, walking the walk or talking the talk. It comes by faith through grace in Christ alone. Verse eight, for by by grace you have been saved through faith. This is what happens with this group of friends. It's their faith. It's not their actions. It's their faith. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. It's not our works that save us. It's not our works that forgive us of our sins. Even the Pharisees knew this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Our works can't save us. You could look in the book of Hebrews. It says even sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, that doesn't save us. Good look at Jesus, John chapter 14, verse six. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one's forgiven except through Jesus. That's the consistent message throughout the entire whole of scripture. It's God who forgives. It's God who saves. Just as Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic, Jesus came to forgive our sins as well. What's the third thing we see? The third thing we see in this text is that Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus ate with sinners. And this is where some of my own pharisaical religious heart has, uh, in the past, really collided with this text. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, the tax collectors were a group of hated individuals. These were most likely guys who grew up Jewish and then left the Jewish community, sided with the oppressive Roman regime so they could just get rich and live a really nice lifestyle. Okay, and the way this tax collector thing would work, we'll use Peter for an example. We saw Peter follow Jesus after catching a whole lot of fish last week in Luke chapter 5. Uh, let's say Peter catches a whole bunch of fish. On his way out from the dock, he sees Levi, a tax collector, and tax collector Levi says, How many fish did you catch tonight? And he says, Boy, did we have a good one. We caught a lot. Last night, nothing. This morning with Jesus, more than I could count. Okay, well, that's going to be X amount of dollars. Okay, uh, do the thing. How many guys were in the boat with you today? Uh, here we go again. Three. That's going to be more going to be more one net or two nets this time. It was a lot of nets. Jesus is a really good fisherman and there was multiple boats, okay. More money, more money. How'd you get the fish out? Did you walk them out? You wheelbarrow them out? Wheelbarrow. How many trips? Four, more more. This is what tax collectors did. They got incredibly wealthy by legally stealing from people. So as you can imagine, these guys were hated. No one liked these guys. No one wanted to be with these guys. They were sellouts, siding with this oppressive Rome thing. No one wanted to be with them. Yet Jesus, on his way, he sees this guy named Levi, a tax collector, sitting at the tax booth, doing his job, and he says, Levi, follow me. Verse 28, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Leaving everything, he left his lifestyle, he left his job, he just went and followed Jesus. Jesus. What does Levi do next? Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and I love this, and others, others, just other people, other people that we wouldn't normally think Jesus would associate with, reclining at table with them and the Pharisees and their scribes, this is our religious folks, the religious folks who are so, uh, are so, they're law-keeping there we got to do the right thing say the right thing we got to make sure we only associate people with with uh, with people who are doing the right thing and saying the right thing if someone's a sinner they're unclean we can't hang out with them because we run the risk then of becoming unclean ourselves we're just not going to do this but Jesus is hanging out having a feast with a large company of tax collectors of others and of sinners what are the religious folks going to say? And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. Uh, this word grumbled is really great. It's almost as if uh, you were to like turn to your friend during a meal and with a low tone of voice and kind of sarcastic and negative, you're like, can you believe what that guy's wearing? Can you believe this? We're at Mastro's. The dude's wearing a tuxedo t-shirt. This guy's a joke. Be that kind of thing. And that's what the Pharisees do right here. Can you believe? Can you believe who he's eating with? Can you believe who he's hanging out with? These tax collectors, these sinners, these sellouts, these outcasts, these unclean people, can you believe it? And Jesus answers them, which I love, because they never talk to Jesus, and it's like Jesus just catches them red-handed right in the moment. And Jesus answered them. This is the same thing this missionary told me when when I was a freshman in high school. Those... Who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, in other words, it's those who think they're well. It's those who think they're well who don't need a physician. See, the righteous religious Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, they think they're well, but they are sick as a dog. They think their religion will save them. They think doing the right thing, saying the right thing will save them. They don't understand just how sick they are. They don't understand how much they need a physician not the well who need a physician it's those who are sick and then jesus says this i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance i haven't called, come to call the people who think they've got it all together the people who are righteous who do all the, all the walk the walk and talk the talk the people who uphold everything on the external so they have this great reputation i haven't come for them i've come for the people who know they're broken come for the people who know they're lost. I've come for the people who know they're a sinner. I've come for the people who know they're sick. Scriptures teach that's all of us. We're all sick. We're all hurting. We're all lost. None of us are well. Luke chapter 19, Jesus speaks of why he's here in the first place. Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. You ever been lost before? I got lost in a cornfield when I was five years old. That sounds like a scary movie kind of thing. And it was terrifying. And you better believe I knew I was lost. Right, it's like late July, knee high by the 4th of July. This was like head high and more by the 4th of July kind of corn. Just lost in a cornfield. Had all sorts of people looking for me. They finally found me and boy, it did it feel good to get found. It's what Jesus came for. Jesus came to seek and save the people who were lost. Man, three really extraordinary things we get to see in this text this morning. We see the extraordinary faith of five friends who will do whatever it takes to bring their friend to Jesus. It's extraordinary faith. We see an extraordinary interaction of Jesus forgiving a man's sins and healing him of his paralysis. We also see an extraordinary interaction of Jesus sitting and eating with tax collectors, with sinners, and with others. My hope and prayer is that our response would be much like the response of some of the people in this text, that we would leave today glorifying God with our life. Let me offer three applications that I think would lead us to do so. Just as Jesus saw the faith of these five friends, friends, would our faith be seen in the way that we live our lives? Not in this talk the talk, walk the walk kind of thing. Not in this faith without works, which is rebellion. Not in this works without faith, which is just religion. Would we desperately seek and desire to follow Jesus? And as Jesus transforms our life, would our faith be evident to the people around us? Now let me give this a nod specifically towards friendship because we don't talk a whole lot about what's it mean to be a Christian friend. Let's go to Proverbs real quick. Rewind Proverbs chapter 17. You can turn there or look at the screen. I'll read from it up here. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. Speaking of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian friend says this, a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. What does Jesus say on John chapter 13, 34 and 35? By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's like the cardinal Christian virtue, love. That's who we're meant to be. A, a Christian friend, a faithful friend truly loves. A friend loves at all times when it's hard, when it's easy, when things are just an ordinary Tuesday. We still love one another and a brother is born for adversity. I love that because this moment of four friends ripping the roof off a house and dropping their friend before Jesus, that's adversity. Right, that's the kind of thing where your friend's not seeing clearly and they don't know what they need and they can't go to Jesus on their own. So what do we do? Whatever it takes. We do whatever it takes to bring those people around us so they can meet Jesus, know and love and follow Jesus. Proverbs 27, we'll look at one more. Proverbs 27, verse six. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This isn't. We're not uh, wounding each other to hurt one another. We're wounding one another to help each other. And this isn't out of an aim to, to be rude or just be a jerk. It's it's an aim to help people see things clearly, know who they are and know Christ. Sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I came full of what? Full of grace and full of truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. But friends, all too often we're so caught up in trying to be gracious that we don't tell the truth. We need to be this kind of faithful friend to the people in our life. Man, what's that look like for you? What's that look like for you in your small group? What's that look like for you in your marriage? Husbands, what's it look like for you to bring your wife to Jesus when she can't do it on her own? When there's something going on and she just doesn't know where to place it or doesn't know what to do with it, what's it look like for you to rip the roof off and bring her in front of our Lord? Wives, what's it look like for you when your husband is just being belligerent and trying to fix everything and thinks he has everything under control? I know that guy pretty well. What's it look like for you to lovingly, gently, graciously, and mercifully rip the roof off and lower him in front of our Lord? This is what faithful friendship looks like. We bring each other before Jesus. So, look like with our relationships with friends at school. The world is chirping in their ear all the time, telling them what's okay, how they should live their life, affirming any decision they'd like to make. How do we approach those people with grace? How do we approach them with the truth of the gospel and graciously, lovingly, mercifully rip the roof off and bring them before the Lord? It's what God calls us to as faithful friends. Would our faith be seen? in our Christian relationships. Secondly, just as Christ was sent to seek and save the lost, would we realize that our Lord's mission has become our mission as well? That we have been sent by God for sinners. We have been sent by God for sinners. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross. And what's he pray for? He prays for his church, prays for his people. And says, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, That's not the point. The point isn't for them to just hunker down or remove themselves, but that you'd protect them from the evil one. Then later on, he says, just as you sent me to seek and save the lost, so I am sending them. The mission of Christ becomes the mission of Christians. His mission is our mission, to seek and save the lost. Matthew chapter five, we're gonna turn one more place. Matthew chapter five, Verses 14 through 16, I'll read this. It says this, you are the light of the world. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the light of the world. You're right, John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. John 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. When we become Christians, little Christ, the light of Jesus fills our life. We become the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I love this doesn't say do your best to shine the light. In the same way, shine your light. No, in the same way, let your light shine. Walk in faith, follow Jesus and the light of Christ will shine through us. All too often we become this city on a hill that tries to hide itself. All too often, we become this candle that's meant to give light that we cover up for fear what others might think or say of us. We're gonna see pretty soon, blessed are you when others revile you, when they exclude you on account of my name. Friends, there will come moments where we let our light shine for Christ and people will not like it. Jesus says, remember, if they hated you, they hated me first. It's our job to follow Christ, to walk with Christ, be faithful, and allow him to shine his light through us. Let me ask you a question, not a trick question. Where is light the most effective? Thank you, darkness. Darkness. All too often, while Christ has called us to be faithful Christian friends to one another, we surround ourselves with bright, shining lights, and it's almost like a who's the brightest light competition. That's good. We should shine bright among other bright, shining stars, other bright lights around us. We should consider how to stir each other up to love and good works and do all the things Christ has called us to do in Christian community. But if all we ever do is shine our light among lights, then we miss it. We miss it. This is why Jesus had room at his table. It's why Jesus ate with tax collectors, it's why Jesus ate with sinners. That's why Jesus ate with others. The people in our life that we might say, "Man, that person's unreachable." I did that. Do you know who she is? Do you know what she's done? Do you know how she spends her time? That's the person you're going to try to go reach. Yeah, I'm gonna shine my light in dark places that people might see my good deeds and praise my Father in heaven. Come to know Jesus because He is the light of the world. What's that look like for us? There was room at Jesus's table. Is there room at yours? I mean, physically, is there room in your life? Have you created room in your life to sit with and meet with and be with and love on people who are different than you? Who see the world different than you? Who understand life different than you? Whose convictions are different than yours? And by all standards, we could consider them as someone who doesn't walk with Jesus, someone Jesus seeks to save. Do we allow space for that in our life or do we become a bright light shining among bright lights and never get out in the world actually shine our light in the dark like Christ has called us to do? Friends, if that's Christ's mission, seek and save the lost, it's the mission of Christ's people that we would go out and seek and save the lost, that there would be room at our table for sinners, for tax collectors, for others. And I'll close with this. Thirdly and finally, each and every one of us needs to know this morning, there is a seat at Jesus's table for you. There's a seat at his table for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, if Jesus only knew all the things I've said, all the things I've done or the things that have been done to me, he wouldn't want me at his table. Here's the beauty of the gospel. He's seen it all. He knows it all. He's heard it all. He's perceived it all. And guess what? He wants you. That's what the scriptures teach, that that Jesus gave everything. He gave all of his righteousness and took on all of our sin that we might be able to enter into a relationship with him. The Bible says that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, a perfect life, 100% perfect perfect, not an ounce of sin, not a desire for sin, which made him the perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins, that wage that's earned, that penalty that we deserved. The scriptures teach that Jesus took a cross, that he died on our behalf, paying the penalty for that sin, that he was buried, that three days later he came back from the dead, defeating death, that if you and I would place our faith, our hope, our trust in Christ and in Christ alone, then you and I can live. We can follow him out of the darkness and into light. Friends, I'm not sure where you're at this morning. Maybe in the stillness of your heart, you're feeling and hearing the voice of the Lord calling out to you as he did to Peter, follow me. Maybe you're hearing or feeling that voice as Jesus called out to Levi and said, follow me. Maybe this morning you feel Christ calling out to you saying, follow me. Would you repent of your sin? Would you turn away from your way of life, turn towards Christ and live. I Man, if that's you, we have a team of people who are in the back corner of the worship center uh, every Sunday, every Thursday night. It's our Follow Jesus team, and that team meets around a table. And guess what? There's room at that table for you today. If your heart this morning is to follow Christ, give your life to Him, repent of your sin, turn away, turn towards Christ, and live, we would love to have a conversation with you. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you've got questions, and we'll try to give you the best answers for those questions we have. That you too could follow Christ and have a seat at his table. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for this story of of who your son is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. God, if there's people here this morning with misconceptions or misunderstandings about just how much you love them, God, I pray those would be resolved. They would see the love you have for them. That they would feel the love you have for them even right now this morning as I speak. Holy Spirit, would you convict us of our sins? Open our eyes to see things the way you see them. Open our hearts to respond in faith that we choose to follow you God, your mission is clear to seek and save the lost. The mission you've given us is clear as well. Seek and save the lost. God, wherever you lead us this week, would we follow? Would we let our light shine before the people in our life that they might see that light, that they might see that faith, and as a result, give their life over to you, glorifying God who is in heaven. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Friends, would our faith be seen this week? Would we let our light shine before men that they might see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven? Would we be willing to do whatever it takes in the relationships of our life to rip off the roof, let down the rope, and bring people before their Lord and King, their Savior, Jesus Christ? Would there be room at our tables, not just metaphorically, but physically? Would we invite people into our lives for the hope, and the purpose of them hearing the gospel, meeting Jesus, and being saved. And if you're here this morning finding yourself desiring or maybe even asking questions about what it means to follow Jesus, let me remind you, there is room at Jesus' table for you. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We have a prayer team down front. They'd love to lead you, pray with you, care for you, however they might be able to. Would each and every one of us be faithful? Would we follow Jesus wherever he leads us this week for his glory? And his glory alone. We love you guys. Love each other. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.